up a study that we began a few weeks ago on the Holy Spirit. And this is sort of tied around this, this theme of Easter. I know most of you are thinking Easter was like about two months ago now, pretty close. But there's several things that happened after Easter that are just as critical, just as important to the Christian faith as Easter. Jesus comes to earth, he lives, he dies for our sins, he is put on the cross, he is resurrected, he ascends, and then we have this beautiful truth of the Holy Spirit being sent into earth, the day of Pentecost. And so for the past three weeks, timed right around the day we as Christians celebrate the coming of the Holy Spirit, we have been trying to point out a, a very important day for us to be mindful of, because historically it's when we believe God sent the Holy Spirit into the world. The Easter story is not an, an ended story. There are multiple pages and chapters that were written after it in the scripture, and that story is still being written today in the lives of God's people in this room, in our state, in our country, and around the world. And so the coming of the Holy Spirit truly is this wonderful opportunity we have to celebrate another promise that Jesus made good on after his resurrection, that after his ascension and until his return, he was going to send us his Holy Spirit. And the book of Acts tells us, Acts 1a particularly, that the Holy Spirit is an unstoppable power given to us so we can carry on the work that he began, Jesus, in our lives and in the world while he was on our earth. We are in the era of the Spirit until Jesus' return. And in Scripture we learn the Holy Spirit is responsible for helping us to do some very important things, some foundational things. First, he helps us to find Jesus. He helps us to grow in Jesus, we'd say salvation and sanctification, and he also equips us to carry on the mission of Jesus' grace and redemption in the world. So in every tenet, in every aspect of the Christian faith, the Holy Spirit is meant to be driving the bus right now. His presence in our lives and in the world is the catalytic power that makes the kingdom of God move forward through our fidelity. It's a beautiful truth when you think about it this way, because what it means is the advocate, the Holy Spirit, is here for us. He's here for God first and foremost, but the byproduct of that is that he's here for us. And what that means is, when we think about the Christian faith, it's not just us in these individual silos trying to function in ways that honor Jesus and bless our world. There is a we nature to the Christian faith. That's the reason why I'm titling our series next week, We Believe. I'll save that for next week. But I want you to hear today, we are in community with God the Father, Jesus the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and with each other, the men and women, past, present, and future, who have, are, and will love Jesus. And so because of the central nature of the Holy Spirit in our lives, we've been revisiting some teachings that I did years ago to help us get a better understanding of who the Holy Spirit is and what he does in our life. He has an identity, he has a purpose in God's kingdom, and he has a significant role in our lives. All those messages are online. You may listen to them at your leisure. They are not necessary to understand what we're going to talk about today, but they certainly will be helpful because they sort of frame a, a, a building sort of crescendo, if you will, about the nature and the work of the Holy Spirit. Simply put, he does amazing things in our lives. And the sort of titled idea that we've been talking about is that he is our advocate before God and in this world. And so today, we're going to add another layer to these Holy Spirit truths by looking at Ephesians 5, 18 through 20. And I know what the CO directors are thinking, like, this guy's talking about drunkenness. And the day I got like 60 college students here, I promise if you work with me here, this will honor God. Okay, we're not dealing with drunkenness like that. We're going to talk about the contrast Paul makes here, or we might even figure out why he makes this comparison. That's what we're going to talk about. So it's here that Paul teaches us one of the greatest evidences that a person is firmly rooted in Jesus. Remember, that's the theme of Ephesians. How do we sort of live a life that is defined by God and fulfilled fullness in the Holy Spirit? Jesus' world, how do we sort of live in his world in our lives? That's Ephesians. But this part of rooting, this part of firmly being rooted in Jesus is when we have been filled with the Holy Spirit, when we are living in the power of the Holy Spirit. Throughout the New Testament, this term is used quite a bit. 
And there's another term that I would like to submit to you today is sort of the, it's the end of the equation. When our lives are defined by the Holy Spirit, when they are filled by the Holy Spirit, what that creates is what I want to talk about today, a lifestyle of worship. This is also a term in the New Testament. We'll look at Romans 12 here in a few minutes on the back end of this. But worship is interesting because Scripture talks about it regularly as being a, a lifestyle. It's something that doesn't start and stop. It's actually something that should always, all the time, be happening in our life. And here's where there's sort of an interesting contrast. This lifestyle statement often stands in sharp contrast to what many modern Christians have come to see worship as, which is simply put, just the hour, give or take a little bit, depending on how the band that I'm feeling on a Sunday, just the hour or so that we spend here worshiping. And while this certainly is one of the ways we worship God, please don't hear me denigrating what we're doing now. We have a very significant belief in the, the church gathered. It's one of the two main things we do as a body. We are gathered like this, and we are sort of in group life as we leave this place. Don't hear me denigrating this time. I want to sort of help you understand that worship was never meant to be restricted to this time. This is certainly one of the ways we worship God, and we deeply value it here. But to just see worship as what happens in this room or the rooms around America that are worshiping God now or midweek meetings or whatever the formal gathering is, that is worship. But to simply see worship as the, the time we spend together in rooms like this, it undermines the significance of why Jesus sent us his Holy Spirit. And this is the truth that I want to talk to you about today. So before we jump into the main idea that I want to discuss, I want to open us with a very practical definition of what worship is. I have shared this with you in years past. It is a, a very common and practical definition that I think is worth sort of thinking about as we move through this time together. It'll be behind me, and I will read it to you now. Worship is the act of bowing down in adoration before God because you genuinely see him as greater than yourself. So this is the foundation of worship, is that there's a recognition that there is somebody, in this case our God, that requires a, a posture of the heart. It requires us to sort of recognize God's goodness and our greatness and to sort of be in awe about that. It is a posture of the heart that compels you to give your ultimate love and affection to God by living your life in light of his truth because he is worthy of it. That's why I say uh, it's important for us to not just think worship happens here. Worship is not an event. The posture of worship can take form in an event, like it is right now. But a posture of worship, think about the way you sit in a chair. It, affe it's, it affects every element of your life. You know, you sit in a chair wrong for too long, you'll have back problems when you're in your mid-40s. That's the story of my life. You get carpal tunnel when your hands are not properly postured on a keyboard. Whatever you're doing, posture affects life. And that's why I think the word posture is a, a very relevant word for the, the work of the Holy Spirit, the work of worship in our life. It's a form of life that is meant to shape every area of life. And the key point I want to make out here is that worship like this affects every area of life. It's not limited to an event or a moment. Worship is a lifestyle. And so with this definition in mind, let's look at the only truth I want to share with you today. There's one idea we'll revolve around this morning. The evidence of a life that is filled with the Holy Spirit is when you desire to live a lifestyle of Jesus-centered worship in every area of your life. So the filling of the Spirit simply means he has embodied our lives, he is indwelling our lives, and he is beginning to guide and direct the steps of our lives. And Paul in Ephesians 5.18 describes this act like this. He says, do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. Now, being filled with the Holy Spirit has unfortunately become one of the most confusing statements in the modern Christian church. Depending on who you're talking to, you are very likely to get a different definition for what that is supposed to look like. And then when you sort of take 
biblical definitions and marry that with experience, a lot of times you can get very robust and clear understandings of the way the Spirit is supposed to work. Sometimes we've seen some tendencies that drift into what we would identify as theological and practical abuses of the Holy Spirit. Because we're talking about the way God works in our lives. And while we might start talking about a definition about the Holy Spirit, the practical application of that in our lives creates experiences in our lives. And so it would make sense the experience of life is oftentimes less rigid or less defined than a definition, no pun intended. It's important that we have a a congruency between our understanding of the definition of the Holy Spirit, how he works, and in particular, how he is applied in our lives, how God desires to use him in our lives. And so depending on who you're talking to, if you have a Christian background, you likely have an understanding to some degree, or maybe none at all, I mentioned this a couple of weeks ago, about the Holy Spirit. If you have a background, you have probably heard somebody throw terms like this around. Uh, This person is filled with the Holy Spirit, or that church is filled with the Holy Spirit, or that person is filled with the Holy Spirit, or isn't filled with the Holy Spirit. There's a lot of confusion, I find at times, floating around today regarding statements like this. And while we don't have time to address them all, it's important that we briefly identify the the two root issues driving every issue of confusion about the person and work of the Holy Spirit. Consider this sort of the mother and father of all of the confusing ideas about the Holy Spirit. Imbalancing in one of these two ways is going to create an imbalance in our understanding of the nature and the person of the Holy Spirit and his work in our lives in the world. The first root issue is when a believer or a church, because remember, our church meets in a place, but our church is not a place. It's a gathered group of people. So when a believer or church, believers are gathered in local churches, sensationalizes the work of the Holy Spirit. The first idea I want to mention briefly is the sensationalization of the Holy Spirit. Now, this is the person, practically speaking, who takes the handful, and don't get me wrong, there are miracles in the New Testament. There are some pretty profound ways, miraculous ways, we would say, that God is working through Jesus, first and foremost, and then the power of the Spirit. There are miraculous ways he's working in the Scripture. The challenge with this is when we begin to take what is the miraculous, and then we begin to tell other people that if those miraculous events aren't happening in your life on an everyday common basis, you don't really know Jesus. Or maybe the power of the Spirit is not working in you. And what happens here is we can, we can sort of set this bar for how we expect the Holy Spirit to work. And then when we don't see like, you know, Jesus doing things like he did in the New Testament in our lives, or the Spirit, like, you know, you get up at work and you're like, hey, I believe in Jesus, and you baptize 65 people, like, you know, sprinkling them in a water fountain right afterwards, we wonder, like, why, why isn't this happening in my life? What I'm saying is, is that's an evidence, potentially, of over-sensationalization. Simply meaning the Spirit's going to work in the best situation in your life and in your environment. And if we take these these ideas, these miracles at times, and make what I would say is an unbiblical and often abusive correction between the miraculous works of the Holy Spirit being an evidence that you really are a Christian, as if the fact that God has redeemed us and is in our lives every single day and is communicating with us every day, we we sort of forget how miraculous that is. We tend to look to these dynamic events in the New Testament. And in doing so, what can happen, I'm not saying God can't work that way, I'm just saying we're going to completely miss the way God is working and what we might consider to be common or ordinary ways in our lives. Common and ordinary maybe to us, but incredibly uncommon and not ordinary at all when you think that the Holy Spirit is the the tie that binds us to Jesus in heaven and God the Father. This is a subject that I'm somewhat sensitive to because when I became a Christian in my mid-20s or early 20s, I was working with a guy 
that was a professing Christian. He told me he'd been a Christian a whole long time. And I went to him and said like, hey man, I became a Christian. Like this was a shocking thing to me. I was not on the road to following Jesus in my life. I had a a pretty significant conversion experience. And when I told him this, I thought he was going to say, I was like, you know, in heaven or we were brothers. And he just looked at me and he said, I won't believe you're in Jesus until the Holy Spirit starts doing, and he listed a, a, a list of things. And I was a little bit devastated. And that, that statement sort of irked me. And I started studying, like, am I really in Jesus? Because this guy is saying, like, I should be like lifting cars and swinging them across the parking lot because the Holy Spirit is in me. You know, I can just throw a car to your house and drive you to church, that kind of a thing. And it was frustrating. And what's ironic is over, the, over time, even at times in this room, it's, it's not happened a lot, but it's happened enough where I've had people, they show up once and they'll say something to me like, this isn't our right church, but uh, I just feel like the spirit isn't here. I've had literally say, pe- people say that to me. And that's a pretty significant statement. And so I, a specific incident, it didn't happen in this theater, it happened in one down the hall. I remember asking this person, because we like nomadic in this place, I asked them, I said, well, I certainly want to talk about that. Like, what do, you, what do you mean that the Holy Spirit is in here? And they literally looked at me and said, I can't exactly tell you why. I just know he's not here. That's what they said. And I was like, uh, okay, I got nothing for you. Have a great day. Because there's not even a place to dialogue about that. It's a perfect example of like the sensationalized work of the Holy Spirit. It's so sensational we can't define it anymore. That's a problem. And what I've learned is that if Jesus is in you, if you are redeemed in Jesus, his Holy Spirit is with you. That's the way it works. You get him immediately. Now, you will spend the rest of your days living in the power of the Spirit, learning to grow in Jesus. But he is with you and us and will be forever. That never goes away. So we just want to be mindful. The work of the Spirit is sensational. We just don't want to make it so sensational that we actually miss the way the Holy Spirit's working in our life. It's a root abuse for sure. The second root issue is when a believer or church devalues the work of the Holy Spirit. And what I would say here is, anytime I mention this idea, I try to mention this. Those of us sort of in our faith tradition, if we're going to drift one way or the other, it's likely going to be here. This is sort of where the potential of our imbalance could go. I'm not saying it is here. I'm just saying we want to be mindful that this is sort of the the pedigree we come from tends to move in this direction if it's going to move one way at all. And this is what happens when you and I think of the theology of God like this. We say, I worship God the Father, Jesus the Son, and I think that other ghost-like thing called the Holy Spirit. That's what we talked about a few weeks ago, right? We don't really understand what he does, and we've seen some stuff that we think is a little crazy in the world. And so what happens is we just act like he isn't around or real. And Jesus is saying, no, my spirit is actually in you. He's very real. So we don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater here. We definitely want to get to this place where we mindfully understand who he is and what he does. And so so in this camp, the Holy Spirit is misrepresented in a different way. He's sort of treated like an unwelcome guest. We'd prefer to keep locked up in the back of the theater someplace because we're afraid of being identified with what we see as unhealthy abuses, unbiblical connections about the Holy Spirit in our culture today. And I want to explain what I think is the most significant one that we struggle with in the West. By the West, I mean sort of the the ideology and thought that has shaped the hemisphere we live in. For some in this camp, they are so influenced by the modern, enlightened Western world. And anytime I talk about enlightenment in the West, I always say, you know, we're for science. We're not against that stuff. We believe in science. We love science. But I'm saying here, what's happened as the enlightenment moved through our culture is we sort of started to jettison any, any form of the spiritual. Now, that's changing today. Today, we're perhaps more spiritual than ever in our culture, just not spiritual in a purposeful way. Like the object of Christian spirituality is Jesus. That's one of the things we believe. So while spirituality might be rising in the West, 
this type of spirituality that we're talking about today is not necessarily as valuable anymore because even spirituality is sort of embodied in a person named Jesus. So with this position here, what happens is folks forget about the fact that there actually is a spiritual reality in our world. There is God's kingdom and the kingdom of earth. The great church fathers wrote about this stuff, the kingdom of God and the kingdom of man. There are these two kingdoms interacting with each other. And God is working in our lives at all times. His spirit is present and robust. And so we don't ever want to get to the place where we ignore the passages in the Bible talking about the significant and personal role the Holy Spirit plays in our lives. If we do that, it tends to breed a cold and lifeless, a powerless brand of Christianity because you try to pursue the king without the king. You try to build the kingdom without the king. We can't do that. It's not possible. We cannot be something in Jesus without the power of the Holy Spirit. That is how we become new things in Jesus. So despite the confusion today, I am thankful God has given us a clear definition of who the Holy Spirit is and what he does. If we study, this is the belief of the doctrine of pneumatology, the study of the Holy Spirit, if we study the way the Spirit works in the New Testament, then what we do is we begin to formulate sort of a rhythm, a pattern, if you will, of how he works. And in the Bible, I said this every week, and we'll say it again today, the Holy Spirit's main job is to lead people into a deeper relationship with Jesus by constantly revealing God's truth to their hearts. In the unbelieving world, he, he begins to brighten or illuminate truths that we once did not care about. You know, our faith stories really show this. The, the economy of whatever we were following at that point in life is sort of muscled out by a new economy, God's economy. That's the Spirit beginning to work. And for those of us following Jesus, he is helping us become more like Jesus. He is regularly and always God's spotlight on Jesus. He's put in the world to draw attention to Jesus at all times. And so we have to know, because of this, he's never going to work in a way that removes the spotlight from Jesus. Where the Spirit is and Jesus is not, is not right. That's just the way it is. The main problem with the abuses we just spoke about is that in different ways, they both tend to push people away from Jesus. And what one does is it produces a faith marked by false spirituality, sensational spirituality. The other, a lifeless faith that lacks spiritual vitality. Neither one of those are full, full living. That's not fullness in Jesus Christ. It's a form to a certain degree of, of pursuing Jesus, but it's not that rooted idea we try to talk about every week. The truths of Jesus' gospel shaping our life and community for the sake of God's mission. And so to give us a clear picture of what the genuine work of the Holy Spirit looks like in our life, Paul uses this analogy of drunkenness. Now, this is a rather interesting, I admit, but accurate way of explaining the work of the Holy Spirit. And Paul begins his teaching by comparing and contrasting being filled with wine with being filled with the Holy Spirit. He, he's talking about two types of filling, you know, one that is sort of produced by liquor and the other that is produced by God's work. And the definition of drunkenness here is pretty similar to the one we understand in our own world. It's when a person volitionally chooses to let their life, think about this, be soaked with a liquid, saturated with a liquid, in this case alcohol, to the point where it begins to take control of their life. That's what drunkenness done, it does. It so, sort of creates a, an alter personality, an alter ego, if you will, for whatever the duration of the drunkenness is. And if you've ever seen a drunk person, you know they tend to think they're in control of things. You guys are in Daytona now. You're probably going to see a drunk person. I'm just going to let you know. That's just the way it is here, right? But in reality, when you are, if you're drunk, believing you're in control of things, the truth is you're, you're not in control of anything. Let me give you some examples here. 
when somebody is really drunk, they start acting in ways they normally wouldn't if they were sober. They start laughing at things that are not necessarily funny. They can get quick-tempered and angry, right? So I, I find that drunkenness a lot of times just, it sort of aggravates what you naturally are. So if you're a humorous person, you might get more humorous. If you're an angry person, it might bring that, that temperament out, quick-tempered. What normally is like a normal job for us, 15-second job, like, for example, grabbing your wallet out of your pocket, uh, is, is like a 15-minute job. You know, they're, they're looking for their pocket, and it's over here, and, and it's right here, you know? But they think that they're in control. Sometimes in a, in a serious way, very serious way, if drunkenness is perpetual, folks try to use it to escape the problems of life. They're trying to create a different form of control. They're trying to shove out everything that's burdening their soul for whatever the duration of the drunkenness is, only to realize problems are still around when you're sober. That's how that works. When the bottle is empty and you are sort of functioning again with your normal faculties, your problems are still there. There's a huge reason why some people become alcoholics. It's not the only reason, but it's a driving reason for a great many people. They want to escape the hard realities of life by drowning their sorrows and forgetting the hardships of life. And please hear me here. This is not a commentary or a judgment about drunkenness. This is just a statement about Paul's using this for a reason. I don't want you to think I'm getting hard on this. I'm just saying we want to be mindful of what he's trying to communicate through this word. So even though it might seem a bit odd to us, Paul's here is to use, it's, it's a common analogy in his world and ours today, the common analogy of abusing alcohol, to warn us that we should never fill our hearts with anything in this life, to deal with life, whether it is alcohol or money or material items or relationships, or you fill in your blank, whatever's on that list. We're all individual people, and so we tend to have individual preferences. It is very common for people to sort of fill their lives, saturate their lives with things that are not the Holy Spirit. And I'm speaking particularly now to the Christian. When we choose to be saturated and filled with something that is the Holy Spirit, right, or that isn't the Holy Spirit, as if it is the Holy Spirit, there's a bit of a robbing that takes place there. Because when we are filled with the Spirit, we're promised to have an unrivaled uh, fulfillment in this life that no substance, whatever it is, can ever bring to you. Because they're temporal. They come and they go. Money is pretty fleeting. We know that. Drunkenness wears off. Whatever it is, relationships, even the most healthiest of them, they can end. You know, we see, I mean, my grandparents, both of them are now passed away as of a year ago, and they were together their whole life, but eventually one passed. Even in the healthy forms of things, these are temporal blessings. They're beautiful blessings, but they're temporal. But the Spirit is different. The Spirit provides us a satisfaction in the difficult moments of life, and He doesn't leave us when things do get hard. So whatever it may be in life, what Paul is telling us here is we should try to be filled by the Spirit. We should pray this and try to live in a way that, that sort of creates a soil in our hearts that brings this about. We want to be fertile for God to work. And this is because when the Holy Spirit fills your heart, He produces a fruit in your life that leads to an unrivaled satisfaction in Jesus. That is the point of the filling of the Holy Spirit. He brings a greater attention to Jesus in your life. He fills the well of your heart with more Jesus. And so what Paul is saying here is, when you let the Holy Spirit guide your life, when you, I'll just say it, get drunk on the Holy Spirit like this, when he comes into you, it changes things. When he begins to direct your steps, it changes things. You start, he literally says here, you start to sing a different life song. You don't just worship for an hour. You start to sing the all-encompassing song of lifestyle worship, which affects every area of your life. Let me explain. Unlike the out-of-control, drunken stupor Paul is referencing here, the Holy Spirit brings this level of Christ-centered stability to life that empowers you and I to remain in control of our hearts, our minds, our emotions, even when things are totally out of control in life. 
That doesn't mean this happens perfectly, but what it means is the way he is saturating our lives is he's bringing sort of counter thoughts and ideas to our minds and our hearts. He is constantly drawing us back to Jesus' attention. When the world around us, our emotions, our anxieties, our fears, whatever they are, try to pull us away from that rooted stability we have in Christ. To be filled with the Spirit, like Paul speaks of here, is a discipline. It's a, it's a grace from God, for sure. There's nothing we can do to, to demand the Spirit. We would not need the cross if that was the case. What Jesus says is, when you find me, when you're in me, you will have the Spirit. We can't earn him. But I'm telling you, there's certainly things we can do, disciplines, we might say, to shepherd our heart to, have, to help him grow in us. Meaning, we need to meditate on some of these truths. We need to act like they are real and they matter. We need to acquaint our minds and our hearts with them. Because it means, in Christ, you and I now have the ability to sing a new song. We can trade, I'm going to throw a wide net here, but we can trade songs of bitterness, songs of sadness, songs of hurt, songs of anger, songs of anxiety, songs of being overworked, songs of being stressed, whatever the battle cry of what is demanding our time and attention in our lives, we can trade that for a new song. A song that is marked by hope, by joy, by love, by peace and patience. That doesn't mean those things go away. It just means you have a new lyric to process them through. It means God has given us this amazing ability to learn and sing a new tune in our lives, just like the great psalms, hymns, and songs of worship that we read about in Scripture and sing in this place every week. It's literally like Paul is saying, if you ever want to understand why we think mission is so important to the life of our church, what Paul is saying is that what we sing in this place and, and what we study in this place is an act of worship, but it's an act of worship that isn't meant to end here. It is meant to frame the beginning of a life song we should continue to sing after we leave this place. It's the beginning of a song we should be singing all week long, where you and I spend the bulk of our time in our offices, in our workplace, with our friends, and with our family. What a shame it is to, to proclaim these, these truths here and to not have them shape our life when we walk out of this room. To be filled with the Spirit means you and I stop letting negative emotions, particularly fear and anxiety. They are the Mac Daddies of negative emotions in our culture today. They keep you from becoming who God has made you to be. Those are also God's, lowercase g, and they will demand your attention. But we can ask God in his power to, to help us focus on them a little more because we now get to live in the power of the Spirit. We ask God to saturate our hearts in something different than rhythms that might even be hurting us. And when we do this, I cannot predict a timeline here. And I'm not even saying that it's instantaneous. What I'm saying is, is when we focus in this way, God promises he will bring about a Christ-like confidence in our lives. He will bring about a, a continual growth, a, 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 a reshaping of our lives into the image of Jesus. And that life produces fruit. It is a life that is willing to make great sacrifices for Christ. It is a life that is willing to make great sacrifices for people. It is a life that is willing and desires. I, I like the word compelled because it's a biblical one. We're compelled to share this truth with others. You see, the gospel of Jesus Christ and its life-changing truths, they are just too powerful to ignore. They are too meaningful to keep to ourselves. And let's be frank, sometimes they're just too easy to forget in life. And that is why God gave us an advocate. He's aware of that. And he said, I know it's going to be tough some days, but I'm going to give you me. You already have my son. And while my son is not walking around earth with you, I'm going to give you my spirit. So that when your mind or your heart drifts, He's going to remind you of where to bring it back to. His main job 
is to keep our hearts focused on Jesus' truth and promises while simultaneously, don't miss this, while simultaneously burdening our hearts to share them with others. That's, that goes hand in hand. And he does this by giving us the ability and shepherding, training our hearts to sing a new life song. One that I want to say is patterned after the way we worship in here. We love Sunday, don't get me wrong. But Sunday sometimes, just being very frank, can become the greatest distraction in the mind of the believer. It becomes the, the pinnacle of faith at the expense of sort of taking what happens here and letting it define the journey when we walk out of this room. It is an, a critical waypoint in the life of faith, but it is not the only one. And maybe you're saying, I disagree with that. Well, you can do that here. But I want to give you a reason, at least a few, of why this is important. The bottom line in this passage is a simple but profound one. The way we worship God in this place is supposed to set the pace for how we live in the world. Read with me, Ephesians 5, 18 through 20. Here's the back half of what we're talking about. Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. That's what we just talked about. Instead, Paul says, be filled with the Spirit. And now he begins to talk about life, speaking to one another with psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit. Now, that does not literally mean that when you talk to each other, you have to be speaking psalms. I'm going to explain what I mean by this here in a minute. But he's talking about a new language, psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit. Sing and make music from your heart to the Lord. If you're questioning metaphor here, you know your heart cannot sing vocally, but it does sing in a, in a more profound way. Always, he says, giving thanks to God the Father for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's almost like the, the evidence of that song being sung, sung is that we have this ability to be thankful in all areas of life. And I find it really fascinating that Paul makes a serious connection between our worship, like what we're doing right now, being the foundation for how we love and serve Christ when we leave this place. At a time in Christian history where major segments of the Christian community seem to believe that, major, uh, that worshiping God is only a singular event that begins at 10 and ends at 11.15. The cross is much bigger than that. It really is, right? I mean, if that's all that it is, I don't think the worship team is going to be back next week. I'm warning you right now. They're trying to fuel something this week, right? And they get up very early to do it. This teaching and the others like it make it impossible to limit worship to a gathering like this alone, or to disconnect our lives from Sunday worship like we're doing now. This is just as important as living our lives out there, as living our lives out there is, is it's equally important as what we do in here. To disconnect our lives from one or the other is potentially problematic, because Paul is saying literally one of the, one of the roles of this room is what I like to call spiritual formation. What he's saying is the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit in our lives it's meant to shape every area of life. It should compel us in this room to sing and make music from our hearts to the Lord. And it should, as we leave this room, do the same thing in every other area of our lives. It's meant to happen in this room on this day and in every other day of the week. There is no mission without this truth because every other day of the week is where the mission really begins. One of the best examples I've seen of this sort of confusion I shared this with you in 2013, so I know you remember it exactly, is a, a story I had in seminary. I, a handful of them are really defining moments, and this was one of them. I had a conversation with a person about worship styles. You know, we were talking about everything in school, and in the early twos, it, 2000s, meaning you youngins are like, what, 2000? Did you have Instagram there? No. I remember a day when a phone was just hung on my wall. I'm not that old, but that was a phone, right? In that moment, in, from like 2000 to 2010, and I'm sure this is still out there somewhere, but it seems to have sort of faded, there was this whole era of the church where we called 
the era like the era of the worship war, where churches were like splitting over whether or not you wanted a hymn or a contemporary song. And hopefully each week you sort of recognize that we, we try to be ser- very thankful for the historical element of our faith while being very open to the modern forms of it. It's beautiful. I try to mention this anytime that it happens, where some Sundays we'll sing like a psalm or an, an old, old hymn or a song that was written a year ago. And what was happening was, was churches were like tearing themselves up over this stuff. The thing that God means to unite us in voice, our worship before him, now becomes a tool of the enemy to separate God's people. And so this was a very common conversation when I was in school. And I had a conversation with a guy about worship styles in the local church. Using this passage, he told me that the only legitimate expression of Christian worship in the church was to sing hymns with biblical instruments. That's literally what he told me. And I was thinking about that because we were reading this verse, and I said, well, what do you mean by a, like a biblical instrument? Like, if you go to Guitar Center and you're like, I need a biblical instrument, there is no shelf for that. I had no idea what he was talking about. And so he then said, well, go to Psalm 150. And that's the psalm that says, you know, praise God with the harp, praise him with the lyre, praise him with the trumpet. He says all of these things. He, he gives this list of instruments. And he went on to say this verse, combined, uh, combined with that psalm, contains the only approved list of instruments the scripture allowed in worship. And everything else was wrong. It was at that moment I pushed his worship minister resume right back across the table. It was clear to me we were not going to be able to work together. And so at that point I said, we, you know, we, we discussed this robustly, but he was diehard about this. And over time, I learned, at least in that era, that this worship belief was more common than I knew of. It was also very problematic because it's built on a very poor interpretation. It's built on a, on a misunderstanding of this verse. Seeing it this way affects, it limits and affects so much more than what we just do in here. Because Paul is not particularly talking about a worship service in Ephesians. What he's talking about is a lifestyle of worship. So we can't take like this shotgun blast of lifestyle worship and limit it just to this room, nor we can, can we sort of remove this room from it. What happens here, much like the point of that psalm, much like the point of Ephesians, none of this is meant to narrowly define a particular form or brand of worship. It's trying to show us that in every area of life, including what we sing, Everything we have, every breath we take, is meant to be used in worship for the Lord. It's sort of trying to like tell us that everything we do, whether we are aware of it or not, has the potential, and if I may be blunt, should be an act of worship. And in this instance, a preference for style trumped a clear truth of the Bible. And consequently, he created a theology of worship that just made worship about music alone. And music is a very important element of worship. Don't hear me undermining that. I'm just saying, what if we broaden that a little bit? And so there are two critical truths I learned from that story. The first is, is, a, is the lesser of the two I'm trying to make today, but it's worth mentioning since it's part of this story. As believers, we must be careful to never deem an expression of worship invalid if it's biblical in its substance, just because it's not from your tradition or even your preference. I, lear- I believed this functionally in my life, but I learned this experientially when I went to Africa and worked with the Maasai in the African bush, and I watched them sing songs that were honoring Jesus in a language I couldn't even understand. But I I knew, unlike that guy I talked about earlier, I knew that was worship, and the Holy Spirit was there. I did. I could see it. So we don't ever want to just throw something out because we it's not our, our tradition or our preference. And by God's grace, that has never been an issue here. And the reason why I don't think it should be an issue anywhere is because every church body is unique. So they typically have an indigenous expression of worship. We sort of grow something semi-naturally because of who God has given us. And that's a beautiful thing. 
And what that shows us is God is constantly trying to celebrate the diversity of his people because we all come from different places and, and walks in life. But the beauty of the church is that we get to be common. We get to be united in one common voice. And worship is one of the ways we express that. It's never meant to be a tool that further divides us into cliques. Important, but not the main thing I want to say today. The thing that I'm driving at here, the second idea I want to mention to you, is that we have to train our hearts to never see worship as simply a style of music we sing in here. Because that is detrimental to what Paul teaches us here about the Holy Spirit, your soul, my soul, and the church at large. Doing this over time will cause you and I to start worshiping the music or the style at the expense of the God the music seeks to lead us to. That can never happen. At least it shouldn't happen. When you do that, or when I do that, we'll never get to the main point of what Paul is teaching us here about the Holy Spirit and our life of worship. What is the point? Well, here's how we begin to wrap up. The Bible clearly teaches us that the way we worship God together in here is meant to set a pattern for how we live out there, wherever there is, wherever we go. Now, please hear me. I'm not saying that what we do in here isn't meaningful. It is meant to help us pursue God, to replenish our souls, to renew us. I'm just saying that we make a grave mistake if we think this is the only place that happens when we limit worship to just this. And if you need proof here, all we have to do is go back to Jesus. If you read the Gospels, what you're going to find is that worship, there are actually just a handful of temple stories for Jesus. We know he was there. That's what they did. But most of what we're talking about when we get these truths about worship is about his lifestyle of worship. His whole life is oriented around living for God in a way that gives back to God, that represents God in, in every area of life. That's what Jesus shows us. His life is an incredibly strong reminder that when you're filled with his spirit, his spirit, your worship is more than just singing. True worship will change you at the core of your being as you grow into the image of Jesus. And Paul says this in Romans 12, 1 through 2. He literally says this. He says, therefore, I urge you, after listing a whole ton of belief in Romans 1 through 11, he then goes and says, therefore, in other words, everything I've said about God, I urge you now, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and, and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, his pleasing, and his perfect will. In other words, the temple is is us. The church is, is now us. And while we gather in a place, we are not a place. We are a defined people. And when we recognize that identity, we can worship like this. So think about that verse in light of what we do here each week, what you do in your home churches. Each week we gather in this place as God's people to sing about our love for Christ and each other. We bear each other's burdens. I know that because you are all late coming into this room talking over the coffee pots each week. It's, and I love it. I love seeing all that, that conversation and communication. Just wrap it up at 9.55, please. <laughs> right? It's beautiful, though. That's part of what happens here. People are encouraging each other. We're praying together. We're loving each other. We're re receiving, showing love and forgiveness to each other. This is also happening in group life throughout the week. You know, we're challenging each other to embrace Jesus' mission. We are empathizing with the challenge of the mission. We're trying to be gracious to skeptical attitudes towards Christianity and Jesus. We wrestle with unbelief and doubt in our own lives, and we're trying to help others do the same so that they can find truth and clarity with the folks who maybe are in your life that don't know God. We rejoice with each other about the goodness God has shown us in Jesus. We celebrate life's moments. We are here for each other during struggles. We are spurred on into holiness by God's word with each other. Simply put, we're trying to tell the story of the gospel here each week so that you and I can faithfully go about living it and sharing it when we leave this room. 
And so if you're here today and you have recognized that you've been saturating your life with things other than the Holy Spirit, God says, stop. I mean, really, I don't want to say God says a lot, but I think it's pretty fair to say based on this passage that that is something he wants us to stop doing. He wants you and I to start asking him to fill us with a, with a different type of saturation, a dynamic power like this, a power rooted in a person, his Holy Spirit. That often requires us to think about our lives, our faith, requires us to be in the word, requires us to confess sin, to pray to God, to ask God to help us believe the truths of Jesus, and to ask him to remove the things that keep us from experiencing this reality. And so if you're here today, and maybe you are the person who has solely understood worship as sort of what you do for one hour a week, in a place a couple times a month, or maybe you're on the other end of the spectrum and you have understood worship as far as in the traditional sense here, maybe this has been not valuable to you at all. You know, there are a lot of people too that sort of don't believe in any of this stuff we're doing, even though it's sort of prescripted in the Bible. What we're trying to do here is to recognize that our life out there and our space in here plays a significant role. God intends it to form us in a certain way. He intends it to be the, the pace for what we do He intends it to be sort of a a fullness experience, you might say, for our lives in here and everything we do out there. And so as we close, ask God this. Ask him to let your heart drink of his Holy Spirit. Ask him to work in your life this way so that your life is dripping wet, not with drunkenness, but with the loving grace of Christ. If you hear me say anything today, I'm not endorsing drunkenness. Okay, know that. We're talking about a different filling. No matter where you are right now, turn to your Father in heaven and be honest with him about where this is because he already knows that. And let him make good on the promises that he makes to you in this passage. That if you fix your eyes upon him, through the power of his Holy Spirit, he will fill you. He's already in you. But we're talking about a cup that is overflowing. And he's going to lead you to a deeper level of love and worship for Jesus in this place and in every other area of your life. Your campuses, your trainings, your vocations, your schools, wherever it is, he wants to use you in those environments. So let the Holy Spirit lead you now to the grace of his one and only Son, our Savior Jesus. Let him create in you the ability to sing a new life song to Jesus, not just today, but in this very moment. Amen.